0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Jessica Kirkness grew up in the outer burbs with a big extended family and her grandparents living right next door. Those grandparents, Melvin and Phyllis, were affectionate and kind and wise and Jessica often spent more time after school in their house than in her own. But her grandparents' house was distinctly different. The doorbell never rang, the alarm clock never sounded, the TV was on, but the audio was off. Both Melvin and Phyllis were profoundly deaf. Stone deaf was the phrase they used, and they lived in two worlds, among the greater hearing world and within their deaf community, which had its own language and its own ways of doing things. They were both proud of the fact that they could speak and lip-read and follow spoken conversations. Jessica grew up in that space between the two worlds. She knew bits and pieces of sign language, and when she became fluent in Auslan as an adult, it brought her even closer to them both, particularly to her grandpa as he entered his final years. Jessica writes in her book that my grandfather's life was both ordinary and extraordinary. His deafness was so exquisitely misunderstood... That every part of me felt summoned to translate. Jessica's wonderful book is called The House with All the Lights On. Hi, Jessica. Hello. You begin your book by explaining how you would tell the story of you and your grandparents in sign language. Now, in radio, we can't see, it's this beautifully blind medium. How would you describe how you would describe them and your relationship with them just with your hands?
0: With my hands, I would point to myself first. So pointing is quite a common thing in Auslan. So I would talk about myself by pointing a finger to my chest. And then I'd use the letter signs GM and GF to represent my grandparents. And then with a flat hand rising, I would describe the fact that I grew up next door saw so like a hand turning over, like a, a, a key turning in a lock next door to a very, very long house that I grew up uh, next door to my grandparents in. And to describe our relationship, I would interlock my fingers. And that's the sign for relationship to show that we were very, very close.
1: Now, I mentioned your hands there, but would your face be doing some of the work as well?
0: Absolutely. Facial expressions are critical in Auslan. So um, they you know, really make or break the ways that you express yourself. So they're very important in um, you know, showing the difference for, between like or dislike, for example. So you might shake your head or screw up your face if you don't like something. Oh,
1: so you touch your heart and then you, you screw, your up, chest, your you screw I, up your face. That means don't like, right. Don't like, right, right, don't, like right, don't
0: like that. Right. But if you like something, you put a hand. It's the same hand movement on the chest, yeah. but you would have a smile on you your beam. face. You're Do beaming. You're beaming.
1: Oh, how lovely. I like that. Right. And so that's how you would use your face to describe your relationship. Yes. You, you touch your heart. And you'd beam.
0: I, yes, I may do that. Yes, I liked our relationship very much. Oh, is
1: that just like? Well, what is <laughs> love like. then? What's love?
0: Love is two hands oh. over the chest. So almost uh, crossed at the shoulders, I suppose, love. And you might raise your shoulders as you do that and perhaps you'd uh, close your eyes and, or perhaps look up to the sky.
1: Tell me about things like the doorbell and the alarm clock and how they would work in your grandparents' house.
0: Technology, I think, was a big marker of our difference, our sensory difference. Uh, and at the front of my grandfather and grandmother's place, they had a, a doorbell that actually came from the UK and it uses light. So it goes, it, you know, it's got the wiring that goes through the entire home and it lights up, flashes the lights for them to alert them to a caller at the door. Every, and is that in every
1: room? Does it have every the, room. Even in the toilet or the bathroom? Even right. the toilet. And, and is it easy for them to miss that, I wonder? Or, or I don't suppose it is. <laughs> There's a light flashing in every room in the house, is it? In the
0: daytime, right. it could be hard because you may not see the light flashing because it's not as bright. The contrast between, you know, the darkness and the light going off could make it difficult, but you never missed anybody at nighttime. You know, you always knew someone was there. But there were occasions where it would be a really sunny day and the light would go off in the kitchen and it was just a flicker. And so Nanny may miss it if she was looking down and preparing food or something like that. So I might tap her on the shoulder and say, door, door, you know, and make the sign for the light flashing.
1: How about things like the alarm clock next to their bed.
0: That had a a light globe built into it, and so rather than making a sound to raise them from their sleep, uh, it would flash at them, and light was often used to alert them. You know, there are fire alarms now that use light rather than sound for the deaf community to wake them up and get them out of a, a dangerous situation.
1: Was the house quiet? or were there noises that perhaps they weren't aware of in the background?
0: For me, it was a noisy space. When it was just the three of us, so I often spent a lot of mornings and afternoons in their company, and there was a quiet, you know, less cacophony of, people didn't talk over the top of one another. There's a lot of turn-taking in sign language, and um, and obviously there's not a lot of sound produced except for, you know, you might hear a, a clunk of bone against bone, a hand hitting a chest, or the sweep of fingertips, you know, brushing against one another. So those sounds Punctuated our interactions, but there were also bigger ones like Nanny would sometimes leave the fridge door open and there would be these staccato beats. So sometimes she'd miss things like that or sometimes Grandpa would sit on the TV remote and if we were over, they'd put the the sound on for us kids and we'd have it up really loud and so you'd hear this roar of the TV and jump back and, of course, they'd be completely oblivious. And then pots and pans or, uh, you know, cutlery scraped against plastic plates and things like that. So there were lots of sounds for me and I would listen out for them and that's how I knew which room my grandparents were in. You know, the sigh of the kettle meant that Nanny was making tea or my grandfather's breath would whistle quite a lot as well. So he was quite unaware of some of the sounds his body would make. And he also had chronic emphysema. So his breathing was quite labored and you could always follow him by his breathing
1: by and large, you're hearing all these things, but it's not things you normally hear. It sounds like a different auditory environment for someone you can hear like yourself. Very
0: much so. And I found it very peaceful, actually. I really liked the the pace of it. I found it a very different pace. I think that in hearing culture, we, you know, as I say, we speak over the top of one another or there's yelling or we speak from across rooms, you know, my siblings and I would yell back and forth down the hallway (laughs) of our home or we'd have the TV up really loud or there'd be, you know, conversations while dinner was being prepared. But that didn't really happen in my grandparents' home. It was sort of one thing at a time and very Focused and a more relaxed pace, I felt.
1: You called the book "The House with All the Lights On," which is your grandparents' house. Mm. Why was it the house with all the lights on?
0: That points to a couple of things. So the first is the the visual nature of the deaf community. Deaf people are often called the people of the eye because their culture is so visual. You know, they have a visual spatial language and those technologies I described earlier, they all use light to communicate. And sometimes sign language is actually referred to as the language of light because it's using light and movement to communicate rather than auditory kind of signals. So that was part of it. But also in the house, there were so many lights in my grandparents' home and every a night time, it was awash with light. It always felt so warm and cozy. And my grandmother's collected lamps. They were everywhere in the house and of an evening, she would put them all on and it was just very, very luminous. To other people in the street, we had a dog called Turbo and he used to sit at the front window on top of the couch and he was visible as you would walk by and he'd often bark at people and people called it the house with the dog in the window. But for me, it was the house with all the lights on.
1: What was darkness for someone like your grandmother? Was there mm. something to be greatly feared?
0: I think so. It could be peaceful, but it could be the inverse. You know, it could be quite discombobulating for her and quite terrifying. It did mean the end of conversations. So... Without light, you can't have a signed interaction. It really depends upon your eyes being able to see. Um, And in low light, you can't read lips. Harsh lighting is also bad because it casts shadows over faces. So darkness could be very frustrating or poor lighting could be very frustrating for my grandparents. It interrupted their communication. But there were occasions where my grandmother experienced darkness and, and was really, really terrified. Like when? Once my grandparents went on holidays with my parents to Broken Hill, or I think it was Silverton actually, and there was an underground mine that they went into and Nanny was just petrified. She was in there for a moment. She's quite claustrophobic as well, but it was so pitch black that she let out this piercing scream and ran back to the surface, ran back to the light. I think that's where she felt her senses couldn't betray her, you know, that she she felt more secure when she could see her way of understanding of the world uh, disappeared without light.
1: I suppose if you're in a space where you can't see or hear, then you feel like you're suspended in space. Mm. Both of them could talk. You talk about something called a deaf accent. What, what do you mean by that?
0: My grandparents sounded quite distinctive, and you can tell deaf voices. They sound, I mean, everyone sounds different, I think. For my grandmother, her voice was very, very soft and didn't have a, a wide range of pitch, so she often spoke in a rather monotone way and hearing people could have difficulty understanding her. So that meant that I was often stepping in to sort of translate what she was saying and relay information between parties. My grandfather had a very loud deaf voice. So he was very, very booming. He lost his hearing a lot later than my grandmother. So he had, he actually retained a British accent for most of his life because that was how he had learned to speak. And so his accent was was less of a deaf accent, more of a hearing accent.
1: So he had more cadence in his well, more more tonality in his voice? Yes,
0: yeah, that's right. So he was more easily understood, but he wasn't able to lip read as well as my grandmother. And sometimes it followed the syntax of sign language. Nanny would sometimes say something like Mum, birthday what? And that's how you would say it in Auslan rather than what does mum want for her birthday. All of those kind of superfluous (laughs) words fall to the wayside and and she would express things in, in the way that she would in Auslan.
1: You say that both of them learnt how to lip read. I wonder how anyone can do that. It's so hard. Was it taxing for them to lip read in conversations over time?
0: Very much so. And I think we often forgot that as family members. You know, they... They were proud of the fact that they could follow... To a large extent, spoken conversation, and they were very proficient in English, but the the labour it took was you know exhausting for them. And they do say that only thirty percent of information is received through lip reading. Oh, so. and
1: Australians are such bloody mumblers. Yeah, <laughs> so.
0: but also things like poor lighting that I mentioned before, or facial hair, beards and mustaches, or people that don't move their faces much when they talk. So it's not just the the monotone voice also a monotone face (laughs) that's what my grandmother would say that if people didn't move their faces when they talked they had monotone faces
1: the way you're describing them they they sound something to some degree i mean they were migrants from england but they also sounds like when they're living amongst hearing people that they were migrants to that world what do you think of that analogy as deaf people as uh, migrants in the world that's all around them
0: Absolutely, and I think there's a lot written about that. You know, there's a a term called deafnicity, where deaf people often understand themselves as being a a separate cultural group, and that almost like they're an ethnic group. Um, You know, they have their own language, they have their own cultural customs and practices. There are kind of deaf philosophies and deaf ways of thinking that are really unique and kind of idiosyncratic to deaf people. And I think you know when they're within that world, when they when deaf people are together there are no barriers to their communication and it's everything's free-flowing. But within the hearing world, there are barriers to negotiate and there are um, the difficulties that I think are very similar to what migrant communities would face.
1: Given that communication is so much more physical amongst uh, deaf people, how were they kinetically around you and your, your siblings as grandparents? Were they physically affectionate?
0: Oh, very, very. They were larger-than-life characters, lots of slapstick humour. They loved slapstick humour to watch but also participated in it themselves. My grandfather... Always had these grandiose flourishes when he moved and when he communicated. And his, we talk about signing space in Auslan. This is the kind of space around the signing individual. Right,
1: immediately in front of you.
0: Immediately, and sometimes behind. So the past is behind and the future is in front. The present is sort of on the body.
1: Okay, so there's just like this space that's like a couple of feet in all directions around you, then, right? Yeah,
0: that's right. And his signing space was big. So when he was at home, he was just really theatrical in his, the way that he would communicate. And my grandmother was too, and she'd do these little jigs and sort of pop her hands on her hips and do little little bits for me. And I often found that hilarious as a child. But they were very affectionate and very tactile. I think that having a, a kind of visual spatial language means that touch is really, really important. And you know, you're touching your own body, but you're reaching out to touch other people when you communicate too. So, in my family, we would tap one another on the shoulder or we would tap Nanny and Grandpa on the shoulder to alert them, you know, that we wanted to start a conversation. And that was an instruction mum and dad used to give it would be tap nanny, you know, they'd be across the room and we'd run across and and tap, 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 or we'd bang on the floor or we'd slam a fist to the table, oi, oi, you know, (laughs) rather than verbally summoning, we would be using our bodies a lot.
1: (laughs) Go over there and tap your grandmother. So you were sort of like that line of communication then all the time uh, uh, as an intermediary. This is really the story of your book, of of you living as an intermediary Mm. between your grandparents and the outside world.
0: Mm. And I think that's something that is tricky to discuss at times, being an insider and an outsider to this culture, that I was a hearing person uh, that was around deafness and deaf culture, was around sign language. And it felt like an inheritance. It felt like part of my, my family history and was so much a part of who I was. But also I was separate from it. I wasn't fully a participant. I didn't have a perfect grasp of the language. I wasn't deaf myself. And my my outsider status often became apparent.
1: But does the kind of deep love, the deep love, like that's one thing I got from your story, is deep love between you and your grandparents, that sort of seems to fill in the gaps, doesn't
0: it? Very much so. I think there are some bridges or some gaps that are hard to bridge there are gulfs in our understanding at times but yes i think love is often that bridge back it's often that pathway back and there are so many sins that were forgiven i think because of love and and certainly you know in my family we didn't all learn to sign and that's unfortunately very common in hearing families of deaf people why was that i think because of the history of sign language and of and deaf history in general Sign language hasn't been encouraged in the past in fact it's been actively discouraged. It in, has. Very much so. In in schools in the 20th in the 19th and 20th century it was completely banned and it was seen as a a primitive form of communication so something that could never equal spoken language or even written language.
1: So it was something that would be harmful for the deaf person because they yes. would never fully integrate. Yes. That and was it how was, it was seen at the it time. It was
0: considered base and and barbaric animalistic.
1: So in order to practice sign language, was that a political act for a while amongst deaf people?
0: Very much so. A lot of deaf people in the 19th and 20th century attended schools for the deaf, where they were sent away from their families, they were often boarding, and between and amongst themselves, they're using sign language to communicate at night time in the school corridors away from the teacher's. Eyes and line of sight. But if they were caught, they had to report to the headmaster or the headmistress and they were in serious trouble. They were called apes. They had their hands bound behind their backs. Some children were caned, beaten. There are horrible stories in historical literature about what happened to, to deaf children, and it was deeply traumatising for them.
1: And yet the language endured and became more sophisticated, more descriptive, built it up its vocabulary, and here we are today. You said that your grandparents would have parties at their house. Mm. What was it like for you to observe your grandparents' parties with their deaf friends?
0: I loved them. I I had such a great time attending those parties. They were so lively. Everybody was just so full of energy and and the, the theatricality I mentioned before, you know, lots of my grandparents' friends communicated with their whole selves, you know, their whole bodies were thrown into action. And I loved watching signed exchanges and deciphering what was being said and I had a basic grasp of Auslan as a child, but was certainly um, not proficient. and i I just loved watching the deaf accents within sign, you know that everybody has a different signing style. Um, you know some are very, you know I mentioned signing space before that that they hold themselves quite close. And others are really outward in their movements. You know, they use lots of facial expression. And others are more soft, perhaps.
1: And with people like your grandpa, who were who was quite gregarious with his sign language, would sometimes people, deaf people say, "Just turn it down a bit because you're being a bit noisy and in my face with that." <laughs> could, could could you be too loud with sign language for for some people? I, I think
0: that's a lovely way of putting it. Perhaps a like a very hearing way of mm. putting it. But yes, you know, I think you can be a lot in sign language you know um but it's but it's gorgeous and i i think i always wanted to get in i was so fascinated and My grandparents' deaf friends, you know, spoiled me and flattered me and pinched my cheeks and were incredibly generous in the way they communicated. If I didn't know signs, they'd troubleshoot and they would try and find ways of using mime or gesture or pointing or writing things down for me so that I understood. So there was just such a generosity I found in the deaf community. They expect to be misunderstood and so they have all these strategies up their sleeve for times that communication fails.
1: Did those parties look like something like the meetings of a secret society to your young eyes?
0: In some ways, yes. I think it felt like an underground culture and an underground language. And and what it looked like at home was very different to what it looked out in, in everyday life. You know, when we were out in public, my grandfather's signing space would collapse inwards and he would retreat from the gaze of other people and at home there was this liveliness, this verve and this gusto in the way that he would communicate and his friends would communicate. But in the hearing world, he was shy and he was bashful, I suppose, self-conscious about signing and, and being stared at.
1: How did it feel to see him being bashful in when you knew him to be other, quite otherwise, his natural self?
0: It was really challenging. And, you know, I think I was quite audacious a lot of the time and and would sort of say, you should be proud, you know, this precocious little girl saying, you know, you should be proud of your culture and almost giving him a serve. But it's a very long and complex history that I think that, that he's endured. And this self-consciousness didn't come from nowhere. It came from repeated social and cultural messaging that that his language wasn't welcome and shouldn't be used and that... When he did use it, it was a spectacle and, you know, it was either exotic and fetishised or it was not permitted.
1: Your nanny thought that the whole self should be engaged for conversation. What did that mean for you when she wanted to converse with you, Jessica?
0: It meant that I needed to look at her at all times. At all times? At all times. The only time that was an exception was when we were driving and Nanny would often sit in the back of the car and we'd communicate through the rear vision mirror.
1: But when you're not in that situation and you're just in a room together, I think that would be, for me, I think that would be hard. Sometimes I need to turn my gaze away to think momentarily Mm. about what I've just heard but she wouldn't like that if you did that.
0: No, she used to swivel my face back around at times, especially when I was a child. It was really important. You you must look at me and and even my parents would instil that in me too. You must look at Nanny and Grandpa. Do not cover your mouth. Don't mumble. Make sure you're conscious of the light and where the light is facing; otherwise, you can't be understood.
1: How did you feel about bringing friends from the outside world, from school, back home to meet your grandparents?
0: That was a mixed bag. I think I would often forget to mention my grandparents' deafness because, of course, it was you know, inadverted commas normal to me. It was it's what I had grown up with, and then a new person would come into the fold and. I'd need to explain, oh, my grandparents are deaf. Or sometimes when I had forgotten, they would find out through hearing their voices for the first time or through seeing signed interactions taking place. And one friend came round and said, what's wrong with them? And it crushed me and I looked to the floor and and said, nothing, They're, they're just deaf. But it was very hard for me to communicate what that meant at the time. And as I grew up, I think it, it almost was a, a point of pride and a, a point of necessity for me that people I brought home needed to be willing to engage in problem solving, in communication.
1: Well, kids feel such pressure to be normal, whatever that is, and uh, really easily embarrassed. Were you embarrassed? Did you feel guilt or shame about all that?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it was a combination of pride and shame mm-hmm. and they were always sort of intertwined in my life and I would feel immense pride and I remember, uh, you know, being at school and an Auslan interpreter came and visited and showed us how to sign the national anthem and a couple of other songs and I was just bursting. I was so full of pride and I was saying, my grandparents are deaf, my grandparents are deaf. And then I was devastated because I didn't actually know all the signs and it, I went and cried in the bathroom. <laughs> After that, I was so embarrassed that I didn't have the attitude.
1: If you You've put it out, yeah, I've got this, everyone. I know yeah. I'm, I'm in this world. I can do this. Oh, no, I can't. Oh, dear.
0: Yeah, but there were other occasions when I think we were out in public and, and particularly when we were at the shops. I think there were, there were lots of occasions we were at the shops and I was embarrassed and defensive. There was one time a man came up to us in the shops and and asked my grandmother to move out of the way. He was trying to get to the vegetable section and obviously my grandmother didn't hear and I was out of reach from my grandmother so I couldn't tell her what was going on and so a few times he attempted to to yell out his message and she obviously didn't heed his call and uh, then he started swearing at her and, and calling her all sorts of names, all of which I was privy to and I I wasn't sure what to do. I sort of stood there immobilised and was so upset and then eventually... We went away and then he came back at uh, the end of our tro- shopping trip and he was at the front counter about to pay just as we were and he started to try and rip into my grandmother again and it was at that point that I did step in and I told the man off and I said, excuse me, my grandmother's profoundly deaf and you are being rude. And and what did he do? He just looked gobsmacked. He just sort of looked and went, oh, oh and didn't really say anything, and then we (laughs) wheeled off our trolley and and in silence and nothing else was said. But, yeah, it was always a combination of those two
1: things. You're right that you were quite a shy kid or introverted. Mm. Did you wonder, marvel afterwards where that rage and courage had come from?
0: I think it came from a deep love. You know, obviously I I adored them and I felt that I could see things that other people weren't privy to because there was just so much... Misunderstanding, as far as I could see it, about what deaf people were like, and certainly what my grandparents were like. And so often the reaction I, I had with with other people, hearing people, was was pity. You know, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that your grandparents are deaf. And I was so shocked by that response. It was, oh, well, they're they're fine. They're they're very. Ha- they live full lives. You know, come round and see. I'll show you. <laughs>
1: Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
0: Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au/slash
1: conversations. Tell me the story of how your grandfather, Melvin, had become deaf.
0: He was eight years old when he went deaf and it was during wartime, during World War II. He was out in the streets playing with his cousins and some of the neighbourhood children and a rock. They were playing war games and a rock hit his head and shortly thereafter he had meningitis. We're not sure if the rock caused the meningitis. Well, the
1: hospital stay maybe. Possibly,
0: yeah. 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 It's not really clear mm. to us, but after that point, he was very, very ill with meningitis, nearly died, and he lost his hearing in the walls of the hospital, uh, lost his ability to walk, and he I think he was out of school for at least a year.
1: How did he talk about that period when he was in hospital?
0: He didn't realise at first that he'd gone deaf. It was only when he arrived at his deaf school that I think he fully comprehended the fact that his life had shifted. He was so unwell and he was drifting in and out of consciousness for a lot of the time he was in the hospital and he remembers having three injections at the hospital and on the last one a very kind nurse had thought to write it down for him. Um, This is the last one and slipped him that piece of paper and only then he understood, oh, okay, I'm having these injections. And after that he, he went home. From the hospital in a a car, and he said to his mother, "Oh, this car is very quiet." And I think he was just very confused and and quite unwell. Even when he went home, and then when he arrived at deaf school and and saw the signing, I think it fully sunk in. Then, oh, I can't, I can't hear, and and I'm I'm part of a different world.
1: You write that he heard snatches of phantom music for a while. What was going on there?
0: Yeah, apparently it's it's common in some people that have lost their hearing that they will hear phantom noises. It could be um music, it could be voices and and my grandfather heard both. So when he was at home recuperating, he thought he would hear his mother screaming in the bathroom or his father screaming down the hall. And this was at a time that he couldn't walk and he actually threw himself on his on his hands and his belly and and crawled to their assistance thinking that they were in trouble
1: to respond to to respond to a call that that never that's right
0: yeah and his parents would be flummoxed and and shocked to see him what's wrong what's wrong you were screaming you were crying he'd say and there was nothing actually wrong but in the hospital he remembers hearing music underneath his pillow a piano playing under his pillow and he remembers that he told the nurse and the nurse said that's nice you carry on listening and so I don't know that anyone actually broke the news to him that he was deaf or perhaps they did and he just didn't understand because it was really only if he was, you know, if someone's lip pattern was incredibly clear or if someone wrote things down for him that he registered the information.
1: Did he say, as as your grandfather, that he could remember the sound of things?
0: He did. He would tell me about noises. He wouldn't volunteer this information. It was really me, you know, prying and saying what what can you remember can you remember sound and he'd often say oh well not really it was a long time ago but then he'd think about it and say well you know what I do remember the sound of and he would tell me that he could remember the sound of seals so he once went to the Dudley Zoo in the UK and he he could hear the the sea lions yeah (laughs) the sea lions and the seals and he just thought that was a magical sound and he also remembered the sound of echoes so as a kid Growing up in Birmingham, there's canals everywhere. And um, he would play in those canals as a child, and your voice would reverberate through these tunnels. And he remembers that really clearly. And he remembers music as well.
1: How about your grandmother, Phyllis? How did she become deaf?
0: We're not entirely sure, but we think it was pneumonia when she was six months old. Um, As a baby, we believe that she was born hearing. Her mother told the story that she was very responsive as a child and had an illness, some kind of respiratory illness, and after that stopped turning her head to follow sounds and things like that.
1: How did she learn to talk then without any memory of speech?
0: With extensive speech therapy. Back then, um, deaf children were sent to school quite early. So I guess now we'd call that early intervention. But she was three when she went to school and she was given a speech therapist who worked in a very tactile, very embodied way.
1: How? How does that work?
0: So a lot of touching the nose and the throat and thinking about the resonance of sound in the body. My grandmother would explain to me that, you know, you use your ears to understand sound. I use my body. And she would bring my hand to her chest and say, feel the sound in here. And and for an, an N, for example, it's in the nose. You touch the nose and you feel the resonance in the, the nasal cavity they would use chalk dust on the backs of hands. So for, and, you know, they put the hand straight to the mouth and sprinkle this dust, this chalk powder on the back of the hand and and the deaf child would have to produce a a B and a a B. A B. A P and a B. Yeah. So a a B, the chalk would stay still, and a a p. The chalk would scatter through the air, and that's how they could tell that they were doing it right.
1: It seems so incredibly complex to
0: do. Very, and very uh, exhausting. And I think a lot of deaf people found that experience quite traumatizing. This was all under an, an educational philosophy called oralism. Yes. Yeah, so and what was oralism? Oralism was introduced in the the 19th century after the Milan Conference on deaf education and this was basically like a bill that was passed by educators saying that sign language is out from now on we're teaching children to speak and to lip read and potentially to listen with any residual hearing that they might have this was when you know sign language was a punishable offense at school oralism was very much encouraged and still is really to this day we don't we don't call it that anymore, but auditory verbal programs are still the dominant form of teaching kids. And there are still organizations that actively discourage sign language in kids. But for her back then, I think it was just accepted as the norm and that's what she had to do and she's quite proud of the fact that she learned to speak and she adored her teacher. But I do know that there's lots of other deaf people that, that have traumatic memories of learning to speak and, and being forced to speak at you know public presentations when actually they want to sign and not having the autonomy to choose how they would like to communicate.
1: So how did Melvin and Phyllis meet each other then?
0: They met at a deaf dinner dance.
1: A dinner dance? Yes. With music? Yes. (laughs) This is a stupid question, but can you have music at a deaf dinner dance?
0: Absolutely. I've been to lots of deaf parties where there's music as well. And I think as hearing people, we just assume that that music is an auditory phenomenon, you know, that it belongs to hearing culture and that it's it's ours and that we understand it best. But deaf people have an entirely different view of music and vibration is a big part of it and the visual aspects of music. So my grandfather was fascinated with the visual performance of music. So marching bands and seeing uh, instruments up on on stage and seeing how they moved and things like that. But there's lots of deaf raves and things like that even now where they will turn the music up so loud that people have these um, vibrations coursing through their body and it's really pleasurable.
1: So this is the 1950s though where PA systems yeah. don't have like massive tons of bass in them so are they getting the music as vibrations through the dance floor through their feet then
0: through their feet through the floor through watching the band so they might watch the drummer and they'd be looking to the stage and looking to the floor and my grandfather didn't like to dance very much he had two left feet the meningitis really affected his balance so he he couldn't dance very well when he did meet my grandmother and you know they often joked about the fact that he trod on her toes several times but
1: yeah but it sounds like he was a great conversationalist.
0: He was. And I think that's what won my grandmother over. And that they chatted all night. And um, and these deaf dinner dances were really common back then because deaf clubs were were such a part of, of deaf culture.
1: So they got married and your mum came into the world. Was she taught to use sign language as a kid?
0: I don't know that she was ever taught. I think it was around her all the time and she would go to deaf club with Her parents and she would play with the other coders or children of deaf adults, and they would most often be hearing. And so they'd all go off and play together, and they were really between cultures. You know, coders are even more in between cultures than a grandchild of deaf adults.
1: You're a goder, I suppose. Yes, a goder, yes.
0: She picked up bits. She could always fingerspell.
1: Right. Well, you've got one specific sign for a specific letter of the English alphabet. Yes. And that way you can spell out proper names. That's right. right. Yeah.
0: Nouns and places and people and so on and so forth.
1: You say she worked for years with deaf and blind kids in various institutions. And you see this as a kind of quest for knowledge on her part. What do you think she was trying to, to find out?
0: I think it's that almost universal, dare I say, quest to understand... Parents. Your parents and, and where you come from, who you've come from. And to wrap her head around something that I don't think was was discussed at a time she was growing up. There was no handbook for her about how to interact with her, her deaf parents. And I think though they signed and, and she did sign at times, there were moments of conflict I think with her with her father in particular where I think she must have been 12 and she said to him, I can understand you. You don't need to sign to me. I can understand your voice. And so he stopped signing. And there, there were breakdowns, I think, in that relationship that were really difficult and and meant that mum's um, adoption of the language was quite slow. And again, that, that puts you on the margin, puts you on the periphery of the culture if you don't have full access. And that's something that my mum really wanted for us as children, for, for myself and, and for my two siblings. So she sent us to a a preschool where they taught a bilingual program. So it was taught in Auslan and in English.
1: You write that when you got older and you brought boyfriends home, your grandmother would make a point to those boyfriends of explaining that that their deafness had come from a childhood illness. Why do you think she would make such a point of saying that to your boyfriends?
0: This would really upset me and I'd often get quite cross when she'd do this, but I think it came from, again, a really deep-seated place of of shame of her needing to say there's no biological element of deafness in this family. You, you can marry in here and you'll be fine. You can, you can have children and, and none of them will be deaf. None of them will be well, deaf. Whoa.
1: Well, like, like what date What date number? Is this like date number one or two? You bring them home and suddenly there's this coded reference to you having babies with this this guy. You brought. <laughs> that's, that's awkward all it, on its own, awkward. isn't
0: it? And she'd bring it up quite often. She'd repeatedly, she'd remind people and it wasn't Feel just. Feel free to have
1: babies with my granddaughter. Yeah. Right. Is that what it was? Right.
0: (laughs) She just liked to tell her story, I think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There is a concept you write about called deaf gain, Mm. a kind of visual bonus and other sensory bonuses that come along with deafness. Tell me a bit about that.
0: Yeah. So this comes back to, I think, the idea of the people of the eye, you know, deaf people being hypervisual. And there's lots of neurological research that shows that deaf people's brains are much more sensitive to sight. So their peripheral vision is is really advanced. The part of the brain that's kind of allocated for auditory phenomena, it actually becomes visual in a deaf person. So deaf gain, I think, speaks about all the advantages, I suppose, that deaf people experience. So things like access to sign language or communicating in noisy rooms. So when you're having a a conversation in a really loud bar, for example, and you're a hearing person, you've got to scream until you go hoarse. But when you're deaf and you can use sign language, that is not a problem.
1: Oh, and you can talk to people across... A room. Absolutely. So a really noisy room at a party then.
0: Yeah, and we I would be at the shopping centre with my grandmother. She'd be in the dairy section, I'd be in the vegetable section. I'd say, do you want milk? And, you know, as long as she could see my hands moving.
1: Did you just make the, the milking, milk. milking milk, motion yes. like you're pulling on others when you went, you want that's milk? That's right, that's right. the
0: sign for milk, yes. And, and she would <laughs> say yes or no and, you know, so you can communicate across distance as well.
1: We were talking a bit about music before. As a kid you say that you were drawn more and more into music. How did that work with your grandparents, with you being willing to sing and play music around them as you got older?
0: This was a really big thing for me in my adolescence, I think. It was so much a part of my world and so much a part of my love language. You know, this was how I I shared myself with other people. You know, I I thought of music as this really intimate Exchange, you know that it's very vulnerable, that it's very contemplative and reflective, and and I thought it was something that existed outside of my grandparents' reach, and that that really devastated me as a an adolescent. And and what do what, you
1: mean? What do you mean devastated you? In what way?
0: I thought that it meant my grandparents couldn't understand me deeply that because so much of my time was dedicated to writing songs and to singing and to performing. I was often on stage at school and and I never invited my
1: grandparents
0: because I, I had this assumption that they couldn't be part of that world because music was an auditory thing.
1: Did you feel guilty about that?
0: I did. I did. And when I was a child, I didn't. I started off performing and singing and my grandparents would, you know, sit around the garden beds and watch me put on these elaborate shows and they'd clap and put their fingers up in the air and in the, the deaf applause to say, Oh, well done, well done But when I was older I I did feel some kind of guilt or shame for for having my piano around them. And I actually had a little Casio keyboard thing that I, I kept at Nanny and Grandpa's house because my poor brother, younger brother, hated me writing songs. And so I had the upright piano at home and I would, you know, write a song and when you're writing, you repeat something over and over and over and he'd scream, shut up, shut up, you know, he really hated it. So I'd go next door and, and tinker on the, the Casio keyboard and I wasn't bothering anybody. And then I started to get really self-conscious about that, put the keyboard away and didn't touch it for years. And then I invited my grandparents to one particular performance that was a big one for me at school. And what
1: was the performance? What were you doing?
0: I was performing a couple of things that night. I sang in the junior rock band and then I sang and played piano for a song that I had written. And they'd never seen me perform before because I'd always excluded them. And that night they both came along and my grandfather filmed the entire thing and my grandmother looked at me and we had this moment when I came off the stage and people congratulating me and she mouthed, I love you. And at that stage, you know, being 16 or 17, I thought that was such a horrific injustice and I I just wanted them to hear. I couldn't understand why they couldn't hear and why they couldn't be part of, of my hearing world. And later on in my life, I realised that I had put a boundary and I had put a barrier in there for them. And actually, my grandmother reflected on that experience much later in my 20s and, and said that she could tell that I had a beautiful voice. How? She said that she was watching my face and she described in really vivid detail how you know my hair was falling to the one side and she was watching the movement of my lips and the way that my body moved in time to the music. And she didn't know exactly what music was, but she could tell that it was beautiful and that it made her think of beautiful things.
1: Were you on a PA system? I was. And could they feel the resonance of your music your singing and your playing in their bodies when you perform?
0: Yes, very much. So they could feel the vibrations and, and get a sense of the music being slow rather than full of bass and not being very fast and things oh. like that.
1: That was the night they really saw you. They yeah. really saw you that night.
0: And wanted to be a part of it. And I think things really changed after that.
1: You say that it was when you were with your grandparents in that house with the noiseless TV, mm. you experienced something you've not found anywhere else in the world. It's very important to you. What 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 is that?
0: I think it's a, a peace and a calm and a level of understanding. I think I just felt so at home in my grandparents' company.
1: Always or just as a little kid?
0: Always. I, I did... I had breakfast with them up until I was in my mid-twenties, you know, and would boomerang back to the family home um, on occasion and and would still maintain that routine of of fleeing the family home and going to nanny and grandpa's for breakfast, for toast in the morning. And and I just felt so at peace lying on the floor of their home with captions on the TV, learning to, to watch the TV like it was a book, you know, and the captions of the prose on the page and and the... The listening for the sounds that my grandparents made, I just found it really restful. My grandfather was really a man of books, and he loved to read and he loved to write, and was really interested in ideas. And that was something that we we really shared before he died.
1: You say your granddad had emphysema, and in his eighties, it caught up with him. Tell me how you were brought in to act as a interpreter with Auslan with him and the doctor.
0: For a couple of years, I was learning to sign. So I I hit 25 and and realised, oh gosh, I have partial access to my grandparents. So I enrolled myself in a couple of Auslan courses at the Deaf Society, which is now Deaf Connect. And I learned to sign properly, you know, with with the linguistic understanding as well. And that meant I had such free-flowing conversation with my grandfather. And then his emphysema got a lot worse and his health deteriorated to the point that he needed to be hospitalised. And uh, I think we spent about five months between various hospitals and um, eventually a palliative care ward in a nursing home. And because my signing was the strongest, I often ended up doing a lot of the interpreting.
1: So it was you that had to... Tell him what the doctor had told you, that his prognosis was not good. Yes. How did he take the news that he wasn't long for this world?
0: With a kind of gracious surrender that I don't know that I could ever summon. Um, He said that he'd had a good long life. He was very accepting. He had had a heart attack and that had landed him back in hospital at Mm -hmm. that point.
1: And what state were you in?
0: (laughs) It's really hard to hold a lot of those things, I think, when you're in the room with a loved one. We had had five months of him being very, very ill. And then in April, he had the heart attack. We were told that he would die at that point. He was looking really terrible. And then miraculously, he regained consciousness. And I think it felt like a a bit of an opportunity for him to say goodbye. Um, And he knew that. And so he was really for the days that he was awake, he was really full of that verve I described before, you know, joking with the nurses in the ward. And that was beautiful to see, but also heartbreaking to know that it was um, short-lived. It was going to be short-lived.
1: You write about a thing that's known as the long deaf goodbye. Mm. What is that?
0: So in deaf culture, goodbyes take a really long time. It's a bit of a cultural quirk, I suppose, that you see happen at deaf parties, for example. So someone will start saying goodbye and then, you know, they're savouring interactions. And, you know, perhaps this is because so much of interactions that take place in the hearing world are stunted, perhaps, that there are language barriers to navigate. But at a deaf party... You know, you're so excited to be amongst your people that you don't want to say goodbye. You're lingering and holding on. And so extricating yourself from a deaf party does take a a really, really long time. The long deaf goodbye felt like it was part of my grandfather's farewell to us. You know, he was so unwell, but just kept savouring those last moments that we had together.
1: When you weren't there to translate for him, what typically happens to a, a deaf patient like your grandfather when they're in a hospital like that?
0: I think their care is incredibly compromised. And there were occasions um, that we had formal interpreters come to the hospital, and that was a huge relief. But it's very hard to organise that in emergent situations. And often if the family are there, they just end up carrying the load anyhow, I think it was very difficult to deal with medical staff because of the lack of awareness they often have around treating deaf patients.
1: Is part of the problem is because he's old and they just assume he's hard of hearing or something?
0: Yeah, very much so. I think it was a, a case of many of the doctors just choosing to yell at him, excuse me, Mr Hunt, can you hear me? You know, <laughs> bellowing at him. And my, my mother got so frustrated that she would, you know, write out these handwritten notes in texter and put them on the wall saying, you know, Melvin Hunt is profoundly deaf, he cannot hear you. Even if you shout at him, and then putting some communication tips up, you know, like get his attention before you speak, make sure you're articulating clearly, don't slow down, all these sort of communication tips.
1: How did things change in the family in the weeks and months that followed your grandfather's death?
0: It changed everything. For my grandmother, it was devastating and I don't use that word lightly the the grief was thick and dense in the family home there were there were moments that I think my grandmother felt acutely alone having lost her her person you know her her soulmate as she would say her the individual in the family that spoke the same language as her
1: yeah when you were showing right at the beginning Interlockingness, if that's the word. You sort of yeah. interlocked your fingers or something. Yeah. Like yeah. that. And that was them, wasn't it? What were the ways in which they completed each other, your your grandparents, do you think?
0: They had a symbiotic relationship. My grandmother didn't speak as well, I suppose, as my grandfather did. He often did the the verbalizing and she was a fantastic lip reader. And she was able to pick up lots from spoken conversation. When either of them couldn't understand what was going on they used a, a little notepad that was in my grandmother's bag and they would write things down and pass it across a counter to the to the shop owner or to whoever they were speaking to
1: how long was it before you felt the weight of your your grief for your grandfather lift from you
0: I think it took me a good two years to to fully process it and I I think grief is one of those things that's a, a lifelong thing you know it I'm more able to speak about it now, I think. There were times where I felt it very acutely. I do feel a sense of his presence often these days. I wish he was physically here. I wish that I could put the book in his hands and present it to him as an offering. You know, this is for you.
1: We talked about that kind of beautiful piece you could find in your grandparents' house. Can you still find that or is that gone, do you think?
0: I can remember every inch of their home and... I feel like it is a safe space I return to in my mind. When my grandfather died, we left my grandmother in that house, the granny flat that was next to my family home. Uh, for two years, and then we ended up. N- unfortunately, Nanny became less able to take care of herself, so we moved her into the family home. She was just less independent and had declined, so it was no longer safe. So we moved her into the family home, and my sister and her two children now live in Nanny and Grandpa's old home. And she talks about what it's like to live there you know, that she feels this echo of them in some way. It will always be Nanny and Grandpa's.
1: But you've got it in your head anyway, by the sound of things. You've got the geography of it in your head.
0: I do. I can take myself through step by step and I can tell you which books were where and which ornaments were where. and it's a very comforting memory to hold on to.
1: Jessica, what a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing it today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. On ABC Radio. Jessica Kirkness's memoir of her life with her grandparents is called A House with All the Lights On. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a
0: podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations
1: interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.